3: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com
1: slash talk to us.
3: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From the Wall Street crash of 1929 to the global turmoil of 2008, financial crises have wrecked countless lives, businesses and economies. But have lessons been learned from these catastrophes? Or are policymakers and speculators doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past? Award-winning economist Linda Yu recently spoke to John Borkham about the great crashes of the past 100 years and what countries can do to protect themselves when the next crisis inevitably comes knocking.
3: Your previous book focused on 12 of history's great economists and what we can learn from their ideas today. This time around you're looking at 10 great crashes from history and again looking at what lessons we can get from studying those. Before we get going, what makes a crash a great crash?
4: Firstly, I would... It's a great question to start with because um, when economists say "great," they don't mean it's great. So if you think about <laughs> the Great Depression—that was uh, yeah, there's no word you can put in front of a depression that is good. So we tend to mean if it's great, it means that it had a significant impact. So these crashes uh, were termed "great" because they unfortunately uh, led to a recession, uh, you know, economic hardship for people. So not all financial crises have a significant economic impact. So I write about in the book that, for instance, the worst one-day drop in the stock market was actually in 1987, but it it had no uh, significant effect um, on our lives, on the economy. So it's not considered a great crash. But all the crashes in the book are great, unfortunately, because it caused the economic turmoil, people's livelihoods were affected, and that's why uh, they're called Great Crashes.
3: Indeed, that's an excellent explainer. And you describe each of these crashes as having three main phases, euphoria, credibility, and aftermath. Could you explain what you mean by those phases in relation to say like the 1929 Great Crash?
4: Yeah, great question. So the book starts with the 1929 Great Crash because it was such a seismic event. There are huge lessons that we continue to draw from it. So the book starts there and then takes us all the way to actually the cost of living crisis that we're facing today. And all of the crashes that I write about, it's interesting how, well, Mark Twain said it best, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So all the crashes are somewhat different, but they do all share these three phases that we could see clearly in the Wall Street crash of 1929. The very first one is exuberance or euphoria. Um, So I use those terms interchangeably. You might recall in the dot-com crash, um, there was a term irrational exuberance, just to give it a qualifier, (laughs) which I didn't think was necessary. I think anytime you have a massive amount of exuberance or euphoria, you're probably thinking, "Mm, not sure that's entirely rational. (laughs) But it was helpful nevertheless, because what it pointed out was that there was a lot of, I think through history, you might consider it to be human beings, filing in, financially pushing up asset prices through borrowing. So every crash is uh, predated by euphoric belief that prices will only go up. And then uh, the second phase is um, the bust. So all crashes in history were only resolved if the policies to resolve them are credible. So, the, I cite a study by the International Monetary Fund who say the first 10 months of a crash are absolutely crucial in getting the policies right in order to sort it. So, I write about the Japanese real estate crash in the early 1990s. They took years, not months, uh, to resolve. And that's contributed to the third phase, which is the aftermath. So, Japan had lost decades on the back of that crash. And the aftermath, is dependent on what kind of euphoria, what kind of asset bubble, what kind of crash it is. Is it banking, for instance, which leads to the worst economic outcomes, or is it the stock market I mentioned a moment ago, which sometimes has and sometimes doesn't have a significant economic impact. So the nature of the crash matters. And then the credible policies that resolve the crash, those two things together, determine the aftermath? Was it not very significant or was it lost decades? So those are the three phases that we saw in the Great Crash in 1929, where you saw this euphoric rise in the stock market fueled by debt. And then you saw very much a slow resolution of that. So I write about the fact it took 1933 when FDR came into office. And, you know, that was the turning point of that crash because he had credible policies he shut down the banks he he had his far side chat and he said to you, everyone we we have <laughs> we are sorting the banks. It is safer to put your money in a bank than under your mattress. (laughs) And people believed him. So the following week, people actually brought their money to the bank to deposit it. And that was something his predecessor, Hubert Humphreys, uh, couldn't manage. Um, And then the aftermath um, was a result of um, both the fact it was such a big crash And the fact that it took so long to resolve, you ended up with the Great Depression of the 1930s, which had a second recession in 1937, 1938, triggered by a premature uh, withdrawal of monetary policy support and fiscal policy support. So central banks and governments thought the recovery was on a sounder footing. But it wasn't. And then you had a, what we call a recession within a depression. So, credibility of policy is um, a huge lesson to learn. And those two things together determine the aftermath of the 1929 Great Crash and the Great Crashes since.
3: Brilliant. And if we move a bit further on, out of the ashes of World War II, we have the advent of the Bretton Woods system. You know, currencies pegged to the dollar, pegged to the price of gold. Uh, Why did that system initially prevail? And then why did it start to break down?
4: Yeah, it's um, a a turning point in the way we think about international economics. Um, And so I write about it because the original intent of the Bretton Woods system was to have a set of fixed exchange rates. So there was certainty in how countries traded with each other based on the value of their goods, not based on the value of the currencies. And that's actually quite a if you think to today, the premise of the euro is actually along similar lines. You want certainty in the way that you trade with your major trading partners. However, uh, the reason I say this was a turning point in the global economy is that the Bretton Woods system broke down when it coincided with the internationalization of financial markets. So with more and more Uh, The dollar was the anchor currency, um, the anchor alongside gold. As more and more financial transactions took place outside of the United States, uh, the value of the dollar was being determined in offshore markets like the euro-dollar market, which was run out of the UK. That made it um, harder uh, for uh, the U.S. uh, to maintain the money supply, uh, the value of the dollar, and all of that contributed to a Uh, you know, the end of the Bretton Woods system. Um, And what followed from that was a continuation of this linkages between markets around the world, this internationalization of financial markets, which was also um, accompanied by significant deregulation of domestic financial markets. So the Big Bang, for instance, in the UK. Um, In 1986 is one example. So the 70s, the 80s were characterized by a lot of global money flows. And that for um, financial crises meant that when you had a crisis in one country, the spread of that crisis across the world accelerated. So the set of crises i write about first in the book are currency crises and the first generation currency crises were were in latin america in the early 1980s and That started a series of currency crises, uh, which um, that was the first generation. Early 90s, the currency crises you saw it in Europe with the European exchange rate mechanism. Um, And then by the end of the 1990s, the linkages that I'm describing became very apparent through what we call contagion. So the Asian financial crisis spread to Turkey, to Russia and then to uh, Latin America, um, where Argentina ended up having a massive bailout. That was the largest um, at the time. And so these changes um, were all hugely significant in the way we think about the speed of financial crises spreading, uh, which is something that happened um, in the 20th century and which is why I draw it out.
3: Indeed, and I think you describe it as the internationalization of financial markets means an internationalization of financial crises.
4: Yes. And the lesson from that is you need to have solutions, which are also international. So you end up with uh, coordination uh, between nations to set standards like the Basel standards on how much capital banks should hold. You end up with coordinating bodies like the Financial Stability Board, which was formed um, on the uh, uh, at the um, instigation of the G20 Group of Major Economies after the Asian financial crisis to make sure that you can coordinate um, a credible policy response that works across countries, given that um, if crises are international, then solutions and policies must also be.
3: Absolutely. And I think the second generation of crises is the ARM crisis of 1992. And UK listeners of a certain age might remember Black Wednesday when the pound fell below its accepted floor and Britain crashed out of the ERM. Now, earlier you mentioned credibility. I mean, how did Britain's credibility or, or lack of credibility make it vulnerable to a speculative attack?
4: It's a great case study. It's the one I actually write about to illustrate it because it wasn't limited to Britain. But um, the story of the crash, I think, um, is um, you know, it's very uh, it's informative because um, it, you know Spain, Italy also crashed out of the ERM. In fact, the whole ERM dissolved. So to back up a step, the European Exchange Rate Mechanism was when European countries decided to peg their currencies to the Deutschmark as the anchor currency. Now. The early 1990s saw German reunification, so the stability of the mark was affected by the cost of fueling reunification, which meant if the UK wanted to peg its currency to the mark, its interest rates need to move in line. Because that's the nature of pegging your currency to another's currency. If you have a difference in interest rates, money starts to flow the international financial markets. Money starts to flow to the country with a higher interest rate because they get a better return on their investment. So roughly speaking, you need to keep your interest rates fairly aligned. But as Germany was uh, reunifying and, you know, fueling some of that through, you know, very expansionary policies, uh, Britain was in a recession. This is the early 1990s. And so in order to raise its interest rate to keep up with the Germans and to keep the peg, it would have done something which would not have helped the recession. It would have raised the cost of borrowing uh, when the economy was in the doldrums. Unemployment would have gone up. It would have been um, a very uh, tough time uh, to to do that. So um, speculators like George Soros um, decided that uh, the UK commitment uh, to the ERM was incredible because they did not believe the British government would prioritize keeping a currency peg over rising unemployment at home. And so he started to, as speculators do, he started to trade on that. And at one point, interest rates in this country rose to 15% until that Black Wednesday that evening, the government decided to abandon the peg and interest rates quickly came down and if you recall, the 1990s on the back of lower interest rates was a, was actually a, a very strong growth period for the UK. And this is why I write about in the book um, that sometimes people call it White Wednesday <laughs> by having a floating pound. We actually it did pretty well um, on the back of it. But the lesson that I draw out is that at one point, Sweden's Riksbank, its central bank, they raised their interest rates to, you know, Five hundred percent. It is possible to maintain a currency peg. The question is the cost. So that's where the credibility lesson comes in. Um, if speculators decide your policy is incredible, then it makes it very expensive for governments to maintain um, a currency
1: peg. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match
2: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash History Extra. Hola.
0: Hello. This call is being translated.
3: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
0: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
2: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia
3: nueva.
0: Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend.
3: Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije.
0: You know what I said
3: language is no longer a barrier thanks to live translate with galaxy ai on samsung galaxy s24 ultra learn more at samsung.com samsung account login required calls must be made using the native samsung dialer and happening almost concurrently with the rm crisis and also the savings and loan crisis in the us is a real estate crisis in, in japan and the country had experienced a huge boom in the years after world war ii and things start to look a bit dicey by the 1980s what what mistakes were Japan making?
4: Well, I think the very first one is one that's common to all crises throughout history, <laughs> which is they believed that land prices, house prices could never go down. It could only go up. So it was an extreme form of euphoria. I mean, the levels of uh, you know house prices were just absolutely um, astounding in Japan. And you know, you can think of all the ways in which um, uh, you know, human nature, I suppose, wants to believe that home values can only go up, land is very scarce in places like Tokyo. <laughs> so they ended up with this massive housing bubble. But I would also add that in the early 1990s, there were actually housing bubbles in other countries um as well that, bu- that burst. But they did not lead to lost decades. So Scandinavia, for instance, had a housing bubble that burst, and it didn't lead to lost decades of growth. So the lesson from Japan is they took a very long time uh, to resolve uh, the bust. So because remember, as you say, you know Japan was the incredible growth story, the post-war period. You know, it literally went from rebuilding itself to the world's second biggest economy with very high standards of living. And it was um, often viewed as a model of of how you do economic growth and development. So there's a lot of belief in the Japanese system. But what the bus showed was that the weaknesses of the system was that it was very hard given the bureaucracy, uh, probably is also a successful track record. Uh, to acknowledge that they needed to do deep-rooted reforms to the banking system and that um, they needed to essentially rescue the banking system and then reconstitute it. And it's that slowness in acting. They, As I said before, they certainly didn't take 10 months. It took years um, for them to actually um, sort the banking system. And then they ended up with lost decades of growth and deflation where prices fall. And that makes it very hard to grow because when you have falling prices, people put off purchases thinking that prices will be cheaper in the future. So as people repay debt, as you face deflation, growth is slow. And there was also a sense that having gone through uh, such a crash where you saw the value of your home, you know, just fall uh, while you still owe the mortgage, Japanese people are also reluctant to take on debt. And all of that just means it's contributed to slow growth. And actually, I write about... um, You know, there were people who are stuck in, um, you know, negative equity, where their mortgage was more uh, than what their home was worth. And because it was so expensive to buy in Tokyo, they now live two hours outside of Tokyo, stuck in this home, and have a long commute on the back of it. So... You know, the Japanese crash um, holds huge lessons, um, again, about the credibility um, of the policies um, which affected the aftermath. And those lessons were learned in the 2008 global financial crisis, the subcrime crash. Where you saw uh, Ben Bernanke, who was then the chairman of the U.S. Central Bank, the Fed. He was a scholar of the Great Depression. He was also very active in looking at the Japanese crash, and there was a real sense of urgency in making sure the American banks were sorted. <laughs> uh, you know, in two thousand and eight.
3: I want to talk about the the turn of this century, very briefly, and specifically the dot com crash. And with that, I'm interested. I mean. Was that just a case of it was too much too soon, people didn't really understand the technology, and they didn't really understand what they were getting themselves into?
4: Yeah, those are all really good questions. And it's probably questions, um, you know, investors and entrepreneurs are still asking themselves, which is, you know, looking in 2023... What they were banking on, e-commerce, I mean, just imagine getting to buy things online without having to go to a store. Those are all hugely exciting. But uh, the euphoria around the ability to sell online and e-commerce and uh, internet companies, it just led to this massive bubble, uh, the dot-com bubble. And I'll give you an example. I write about several examples um, in this period. Um, But, you know, there was one company where they spent millions on a sock puppet, uh, pets.com, to advertise, (laughs) you know. And then you think well that's a huge amount of money to get your sock puppet to appear in the super bowl in the, <laughs> the united states you know but what is the link to that to uh, selling you know commercialization of your of your goods um and you know some of the other companies spent millions advertising uh, you know the launch of their websites, which couldn't get up in time. But I think fundamentally, so things always go wrong um, when you have <laughs> when you have a crash. You look back and you go, "Oh, there was this and that, and this and that, and that." Which I write about, but I think fundamentally. At that point, Al Gore, the vice president's vision of an information superhighway using fiber optics, that was years in the future. People were still dialing up through the phone lines to get on the internet. <laughs> so when you have all these fancy websites that you know have 3D graphics so, to sell their goods, yeah, it didn't really work. People couldn't load the websites and um, and, and all of that. So um, all of the, you know, the euphoria that fueled uh, the internet um, stock boom, it all came crashing down um, in 2000, 2001, which led to um, a recession in the early 2000s. And, you know, the I think the lessons from there are, well, you know, when you see this Exciting new trend and money all piles into it, and you know, and you get, um, and you get this massive amount of, you know, uh, that's where the term irrational exuberance was coined. Um, that stock prices could only ever go up. To me, that's the lesson: uh, what goes up will come down.
3: Inevitably, and but yes. of course, I mean, some companies, well, some companies do ride out the storm and, and flourish say Amazon for instance what what did what did they do right then
4: yeah I write about Amazon because it's a great example of it is very possible uh, to do well through a downturn and then just imagine how well you'll do in the upturn if you can manage in a recession so Amazon didn't turn a profit until 2002 so that is you know in the aftermath of the um, of the crash. And Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, he was a 50% owner of pets.com, uh, which is the best known, you know, <laughs> uh, dot com disaster. Um, but at Amazon, he wanted to sell everything. And he was doing a lot of the same things that other companies were doing. However, he kept a very close eye on costs. So unlike the massive amount spent on marketing that I mentioned with, you know, these other companies, um, he, was, uh, he ran a very tight ship. And he kept focus on his strategy of being able to ship things in a quick, efficient way, which was something that also, um, you know, other companies, web companies at the time struggled with. He was very focused on executing his strategy. So Amazon came out as a, you know, as a winner um, from the dot-com uh, crash and, and is now, you know, you know, one of the biggest uh, e-retailers um, in the world. And that lesson you can also see um, later on, again, in the 2008 global financial crisis, where companies that start like Airbnb during a downturn, so long as they keep a close eye on costs and they're focused on their strategy and executing it, they can actually end up, you know, doing even better uh, when the upturn um Comes,
3: yeah, and I think you point to that as an example of that creative destruction idea.
4: Yes, and this the is um, uh, idea. Yes, yeah. that's right from my previous book. Joseph Schumpeter, the great yeah. economist, he came up with this yeah. concept of creative destruction, where companies compete, and um, you know, very Darwinian. Uh, the strongest ones, um, you know, win. And um, his argument is that business cycles follow this pattern of firms competing, and then you find a period where you know, firms, um, you know, they compete and the successful ones emerge. But in that process, you have periods of busts and booms. And, um, you know, and you also have big companies which buy up um, you know the smaller companies. So it's not just that the smaller companies disappear, but you have periods of consolidation and periods of of competition. And I think the dot com period really did exemplify that, and that is still the case to today, uh, which I also write about, where we've had a recent tech um, crash, and the big tech companies are nearly as dominant today as. You know, uh, as some of the big tech companies were at that time, Microsoft, um, you know, Cisco, in that period. And yet you have this massive amount of competition from startups. Um, you know, so uh, we'll see if history repeats itself, um, you know, today. From, uh, and hopefully we'll have learned the lessons of the dot com <laughs> crush.
3: Definitely. So, 2008 then. Did, I mean, did, did economists see the global financial crisis looming?
4: So I I mean, one of the, I think this is actually from my previous book, um, the great economist, J.K. Galbraith said, economic forecasting exists to make astrology look respectable. Um, So, you know, as you know, in my book, um, I highlight euphoria as the common trait um, that leads to bubbles. So was there euphoric buildup in house prices um, in the United States and in Europe? And the answer is, is yes. And, you know, in that, um, in that market, um, there were those who didn't believe uh, that house prices, um, you know, the increases were sustainable. So I write about The Big Short, um, you, know, which, uh, co- uh, you know, which talks about, it was, it was a both bu- a book and a movie. And it talks about those who, you know, who thought that a bust was coming and they, you know, they traded and made a huge amount of money on the back of it. But for most people who were, um, you know, uh, building more homes, uh, homeowners, I write about the fact a lot of Americans were um, euphoric about house prices. Some bought second homes. Um, you know, they saw housing as an asset, um, which would increase in value. And I would say probably that one of the differences uh, between um, the way that you think about the policy response to it because policymakers, um, and this goes back to 1955 when the then Fed chairman said, who wants to be the one who takes away the punch bowl when the party's getting started? And that was partly what, you know, Alan Greenspan, um, who had spent quite a lot of time looking at the dot-com bubble, trying to work out if it's fundamentals or if it's, you know, a bubble. Um, he ended up uh, going with the punch bowl idea and saying you know markets will work it out and the markets obviously didn't quite work it out um and so by 2000 you know and eight um policymakers um you know were still in that in that stance their focus was on inflation which was um not the same as the focus on what's called liquidity, where the amount of credit in the economy, because, you know, think about consumer prices, That is the central bank's target in the U.S. and in Europe, they target 2% inflation. And yet there's this massive credit um, bill bubble, which is, you know, building up. Um, and they weren't, um, you know, their mandate wasn't to look at that. So I write about in the book that after 2008, central banks now have a mandate to look at financial stability and not just price stability which is inflation and they now will take away the punch bowl <laughs> because they will now lean against the wind um, so they see increasing debt they will for instance use macro potential tools which can limit um, say the loan to value ratio of a mortgage to try and um, you know deflate that bubble a bit so that is a change so you know uh, looking back, um, policymakers and lots of things, obviously in 2008, Lehman Brothers should that have been rescued and in all of the various post-mortems on that crisis. But the one that I focus on is policymakers after the crisis uh, adopted these tools to lean against you know, the wind. And you think about um, the scale of devastation from the global financial crisis, you could argue that um, they should have learned the lesson from the dot-com bubble, which is, you know, if you don't pay attention to financial stability, um, it really renders the price stability target to be not, probably not the most important thing in you know, an inevitable financial crisis. Because that's the other theme of the book, which is you can try to prevent a financial crisis from becoming a global meltdown. However, you're never going to prevent the next crisis. There's always going to be the next financial crash. You just don't know where. (laughs) Indeed.
3: And just quickly, why did the US banking system recover quicker than those in
4: Europe? All the banks were forced to take uh, money from the government. Um, So TARP, there's lots of acronyms (laughs) in this area. The US government forced all the banks, uh, whether they needed it or not, Uh, to take government money, to build up the capital on their balance sheets. And the reason they had all the banks take the money, so that markets couldn't pick out the weaker banks. And by recapitalizing the banks and actually rescuing quite a few of them um, as well, they stabilized the banking system, made sure it was properly capitalized. It had huge amounts of liquidity because the Fed also injected lots of cash that banks could draw on and the uh, central bank unfroze a number of the credit markets. It's that quick action to shore up the banking system and make it stable. That's why uh, the US, despite being the epicentre of the global financial crisis, its banking system recovered first.
3: You mentioned that the next crate crash is inevitable. I suppose the question on everyone's lips would be when, when is that going to arrive and how could we insulate ourselves from that?
4: So one bit of advice that economists are always given is you should, you can predict the next thing or you can predict the time frame, but never both. <laughs> so, I mean, um, so it's inevitable. We will have another financial uh, crash. We've actually just had with Silicon Valley Bank, the second biggest, um, you know, bank failure in US history. And the aftermath actually is still playing out. So I use that as an example, where if you were to look at all the possible triggers of crashes, Chinese uh, property, and, you know, given the scale of China's debt and economy and importance, um, you know, it's very unusual, hasn't had a great crash, but all countries do. (laughs) And then you look at shadow banking, which is something that, um, you know, we saw a bit uh, here um, in the UK, where the pension funds—you um, know, not exactly banks—they're <laughs> just they're just important parts of the financial system that were caught out um, by the mini budget from last September, which caused interest rates to rise, and then the Bank of England had to step in and, and rescue that. And then you have these uh, mid-tier US banks based in California, <laughs> and then you think, well, is this sort of top of people's risk? <laughs> you know, hari- You know, scanning. But I think I'm using these examples as um, examples of why it's so difficult to work out where the next crash could come from. However, you can uh, take the lesson that anytime you have a huge increase of debt on the basis of euphoria, that, you know, the asset price will only go up, or you make a huge bet using and this is something that's very that's common to the UK pensions crisis and to the Californian banking crisis, which is you know they believed that interest rates um, you know wouldn't spike up, um, or, you know they were making a bet on that, um, and and in a sense you know as you look at um, you know, the reasons for it, you know, the pension funds, you know, they thought they were using some type of hedging And the Silicon Valley banks. They, you know, obviously different different reasons for different banks. But anytime you have this kind of, um, you know, uh, belief that this is the, this is how the world is going to be, and there's there's debt hanging around on the back of it. I think that's where you should start to get very nervous. If you get that call wrong, Chinese property prices probably will not rise forever and ever. Interest rates probably will not stay the same for a long time. You know, once you get these bets wrong, then you have to think, well, actually, is that a warning sign that this could be the next area, you know, of risk um, that could cause a crash? And just hopefully, you know, that it won't be a great crash. That was Linda Yu.
0: Her book, The Great Crashes, Lessons from Global Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them, is published by Penguin Business. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.